Good morning. Welcome to Mountain Radio Astronomy. I'm Sue Ann Heatherly. I'll be your host this morning. Our main interview is with an astronomer named Christy Dyer. She works out of the Naval Research Lab. Well, welcome to Mountain Radio Astronomy. Thanks for taking some time to be with us this morning. You're welcome. It's nice to be in Green Bank. So before we get started on what you're actually doing at the Green Bank Telescope, why don't you first tell us a little bit about who you are, where you went to school, things like that. Okay, I did my undergraduate uh, work at Mount Holyoke College, which is a small women's college in Massachusetts. Um, I actually majored in art there and minored in physics because I couldn't give the art up. And then I went on to do my PhD at North Carolina State in Raleigh. And I've been, I've had two postdocs so far. The first one was in Socorro, New Mexico, and the second one I've spent a year in D.C., and now I'm working on a new telescope project called the Long Wavelength Array, and so I'm working in Albuquerque, New Mexico. But for the Naval Research Lab, which is based in? They're based in Washington, D.C., so I spent a year at that lab, and now I'm spending a year at the telescope site. Okay, very good. An art major, that's interesting. We've had a lot of folks tell us uh, in these interviews that they've done something really different before they settled on astronomy and you you share that with them. I know that uh, one of our interviewees was uh, in the in the armed forces first mm -hmm. and then decided to go back and pursue astronomy. Tell us in general what your research interests are. What do you what do you like to learn about? So right now I'm studying a lot of star formation and I have two star formation projects at very different scales. I've been looking at star formation in very small galaxies. It turns out that big galaxies are few and far between but there are actually lots of tiny small galaxies and relatively nearby so that you can take good pictures of them and so I studied just the beginning of star formation in those galaxies. And then the project that I'm working on here at the GBT is related to star formation in a giant galaxy, M82. And that's actually a starburst galaxy, so it's dominated by new star formation. And what I'm doing with the GBT is observing it with the single dish, and then I'm going to add that information to very high resolution information to try and figure out what triggers the star formation and what causes the, st what causes the star formation to go on inside the galaxy. So you're using a radio telescope to study this process called star formation. Tell us two things. How you study this with a radio telescope, what can you see with a radio telescope, but first maybe tell us a little bit about how stars are formed. Well, what you begin with is a large concentration of dust and gas. And so this large concentration of dust and gas sits there for a while, and then something happens to it there's a shock or a compression and we really don't understand what it is but after that shock or compression happens what it does is it starts condensing and it forms these little slightly denser regions which then collapse to form stars the stars turn on and as they turn on their winds blow out these big bubbles and eventually the winds blow away the nebular cocoon completely um, the Orion Nebula is a really good example of a place where active star formation is going on nearby us um, after the stars are formed the largest of them live out their lives in a very short period of time, live fast, die young, and then they explode in a really massive way. And the radio emission that I'm looking at in this particular galaxy is what the leftovers of those explosions and the shock they cause. It's called synchrotron emission. It's caused by very fast-moving electrons interacting with the magnetic field. Okay, so you're seeing evidence for star formation by looking at stars dying and blowing up. 
the more stars that are formed, you say, the more remnants of these stellar explosions you're going to see, too. Right. One of the things that I'm trying to do with this particular project is tie together early indications of star formation with late indications of star formation. One of the early indications of star formation is that in these nebulas that are making stars, the, the new stars heat up the gas and the dust, and so they radiate in the infrared. The late indication is seeing this radio emission, which is from the exploded stars and from shocks that have sort of diffused throughout the whole galaxy. So you can't figure out which star the shock came from, but they're still hanging out there. And one of the really puzzling things that we found out is that you expect every galaxy to have its own star formation history. Some should have just current star formation, some should have finished their star formation a long time ago, and so you expect them to have different, amount, different amounts of infrared and radio emission. Instead, what happens is that we always find that there's a direct correlation. It has the same ratio of infrared to radio emission in all cases, and that's a huge surprise. So one of the things that I want to find out in the M82, in the galaxy that I'm studying with the GBT, is does that correlation between the infrared and the radio hold on very small scales? And in order to do that, I need to make a very accurate image. Tell us why it is that infrared radiation, which is, we think of that as heat, I guess, why that is, uh, why that shows you where stars are being formed. Well, initially, before any star formation happens at all, that gas is relatively cold, right? So it's, it is heat, the infrared radiation, just like you expect from taking an infrared picture of a match or a person. And there's not very much radiation coming from it because it's not very hot. But as those stars heat up, the dust and gas starts to radiate. And it is black body radiation, just like people give off. And so that tells us that there are stars on the inside of those cocoons. It's the first indication that we have that star formation is happening on the inside. So you might not be able to see the star yet. Exactly. But you can see this glow in the infrared. Right. That's why it's an early indicator. I see. I see. So you're using data from a telescope that can't be the Green Bank Telescope because we don't study infrared radiation. True. It, they, they just launched a new satellite. It's called Spitzer, and it is, its specialty is working on the infrared, and it's put out these beautiful images. Um, and I found that the galaxy that I'm interested in, M82, is part of a survey called SINGS, S-I-N-G-S. And so I'll be able to use that Spitzer information with the radio data that I'm taking in order to do my analysis. You haven't really mentioned optical astronomy. This galaxy has been known for a long time, right? It's got a, a name, M82. Tell us where that comes from. That means this galaxy has been known about for a long time. It's true. It's one of the Messier objects, which means that uh, you can. it's actually a binocular object. If you go outside on a clear, dark night, you'll be able to see it in the sky. It's just a little bit above the Big Dipper. Um, and if you search for M82 on the web, on Google, you'll find finding charts which tell you where to look for it. So it is, it's a very, one of the reasons I chose it is because it's a very bright galaxy and it's a very nearby galaxy, so we'll be able to see a lot of details. Since this is a test project, I wanted to start with an object that would be really easy. And then if this works, we'll do a bunch of galaxies this way. Tell us how far away M82 is. You said it's relatively nearby. What does that mean? In astronomical terms, we think of things that are nearby being a mile or two away. How far away is this galaxy? Well, this galaxy is about 12 million light years, and that's about 71 sextillion miles, which is 71 followed by 18 zeros. And that's close. That's a, that's a good distance to study galaxies. We see galaxies a lot further away than that. 
Now, when you look at a radio image of this area, there have been some done of a larger area of sky, not just this galaxy. But you see evidence of, of other galaxies as well that are nearby. And you see radio emission that looks like it's strings tying these three galaxies together. M82 is one of them. Right. So M82 is in a group which also includes the face-on spiral M81, which is a really beautiful galaxy. And in fact, the reason that we think the starburst action is triggered right now in M82 is because it had a near encounter with M81. So they didn't actually come close enough to hit each other, but they came close enough for the gravitation to trigger the next star formation. One of the things that is really interesting about star formation is that it happens all the time. You look up in the night sky and it's full of stars, so certainly it goes on. But we actually don't know what starts it precisely, right? We don't know what the exact conditions are and we don't know what sets those conditions to making stars because there's plenty of places in the galaxy where it looks like everything's ready to make stars and nothing's going on. There's actually an analogy, which is it turns out that meteorologists don't actually know what causes raindrops to form. So we know it rains all the time. It rained during my first observations on Monday. But we don't actually know what causes the exact drops to form in the exact location at that time. Hmm. And you can make an analogy for star formation. Something has to make things get close enough together. Right. To... There's some kind of trigger, and we don't yet understand what it is. The other galaxies that are part of this system, M81, and there's some other little clump of something out there. I don't know what it's called. Would you expect if you see what you're looking for in terms of uh, star formation in this galaxy that it would hold true for these others? They've all kind of gotten close to each other, I guess, because yeah, there's these tails of material in between them that you can see with a radio telescope. But it's, but it's interesting that um, already from the information that's already been taken from these galaxies in the um, M and the M81 group, we can tell that they're very, have been affected very differently by their gravitational interactions. Because first of all, because M81 is not a starburst galaxy, M82 is a starburst galaxy, and I don't think there's a lot of active star formation going on in the, in the smaller galaxies in the group. So uh, to some extent, I expect to find that there are significant differences, and at the moment I can't explain that. But in fact, the infrared radio correlation that I talked about should hold for all of these very different galaxies. That's one of the really puzzling things about it. So what I'm doing is I'm zooming in on a section of the galaxy, and then in that particular section I'm saying, does the infrared radio correlation hold in this little location? Does it hold in this little ro location right next to it? And if it doesn't, then I'm going to be able to say, now why is that? What do I know about these tiny little areas in the galaxy? It's something that I can't do without the GBT because when we make a very high resolution map with the VLA, we see all the fine scale structure, lots of little tiny details, but we actually miss all the large scale structure. It's just invisible to that telescope. So it's like having a birthday cake. Think about having a plate, and on the plate is a birthday cake with pink frosting and candles. And if you look at it with an interferometer like the very large array, all you're left with is the candles and the frosting. There's no cake. And the GBT helps me observe the large scale structure, and then you have a cake again. Like the forest and the trees. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and just um, so our folks out there are reminded, we've mentioned the VLA before, but just tell them what the VLA is. So the VLA is in New Mexico. It's on the plains of San Augustine. And it is a array of 27 radio telescopes. They're arranged in kind of a Y pattern. Um, and what happens is that you add the telescopes 
the information from the telescopes together. So the longest, the widest spacings between two antennas in the telescope is about um, 30 kilometers, 30 kilometers. Or, yeah. and that it gives us the equivalent of having a 30 kilometer wide telescope to use. So it gives us very good resolution on the sky. So you can see little details. Yes. But you can't see the whole forest right. or the trees. Gotcha. And so by adding GBT data to this, you can you can get get what? What is it about the cake that you're after? Well, what I want to be able to do is actually say for every location in the galaxy, this is exactly how much radio emission is in this particular location in the galaxy. And I can't do that unless I also have the large-scale structure emission. Tell us a little bit more about this infrared radio correlation. So you're saying, are you, that, and I might be getting this completely wrong, that you, you, if you look at a galaxy in the infrared, mm -hmm. a spiral galaxy, and you look at it in the radio, that there's a certain ratio that you see no matter whether it's a starburst galaxy or a regular galaxy. Or an elliptical galaxy oh. or a compact dwarf. And we're talking about galaxies that have a different in, in size scale of, you know, a thousand to one. And we're talking about galaxies that haven't made stars in a while and galaxies that are currently making lots of stars. So, I mean, think of it this way. If you tell me the infrared, I will always be able to tell you how much radio emission there is and vice versa. And we really, we really don't have a good explanation for it. That's a big mystery. It is. It's That's cool. a great mystery. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fun thing to work on. Uh, we were talking about this the other day, and I didn't get it then, but now I get it, I think. I think so. Uh, what are starburst galaxies? You, we're, we're talking about starburst galaxies. Is the Milky Way a starburst galaxy? The Milky Way doesn't really qualify as a starburst galaxy. It's reasonably active, but starburst galaxies are defined because they're compact and they're relatively young, and often they're obscured by dust, right? I told you you need the dust and the gas in order to make the stars, so often um, they're not good objects to look at the optical because um, you have a lot of dust blocking your field of view. The great thing about the radio is we see right through the dust. It doesn't bother your field of view at all. So, Okay, so lots of new stars being formed and we can't see them. Right. Often. They're generally hidden. With an optical telescope because it's so dusty. Yeah, and this one in particular, M82, is kind of strange looking to me, especially the new pictures that have come out of it. You've got yeah, this. Yeah, the x-rays yeah, in particular got these are amazing. Strange jets of material coming out at right angles to the main plane of the galaxies. So it's probably a, a normal spiral galaxy, but when we, we look at it, it's edge on. So imagine a plate that's slightly tilted. So the optical image looks somewhat like a cigar. The radio is coming mostly from the very center where active star formation is going on. And then the X-ray has blown out these lobes above and below the plane of the galaxy. So that goes to show you folks you need lots of different telescopes if you really want to understand what's going on. It's true. And astronomy is heading the, that direction. It used to be that people were like, oh, I'm a radio astronomer. I'm an X-ray astronomer. And more and more, you have to investigate everything that nature tells you about these objects. You know, So you need to go and either collaborate with astronomers from other wavelengths, or you need to go and get the data out of the archives, which is getting easier and easier to do. Tell us a little bit about that. I think that that's a, a really interesting facet of what you're doing that anybody with the right tools and enough due diligence could could do a little real astronomy 
and uncover new things if they took advantage of what you're taking advantage of. So I wrote the proposal for the the Green Bank Telescope data that we're taking, but the data that I'm going to add it to was taken at the VLA five or six years ago. Um, And the people who wrote that proposal and took the data have already written one paper on it. It's a different paper than the kind of paper I'm going to write. And that data is available in the archive. It's public from a year after the day it was taken. And anybody can download it, even if you have a PC or a Mac. Now, it requires special software to analyze it, but um, uh, it is, in fact, free to anybody who wants it. And I actually think this is a really good thing. There are lots of astronomers in countries that don't have the budget to spend on astronomy that the U.S. does. And they can now do astronomy using data in these archives. And often they take on very detailed, very difficult long-term projects that you know, we're not particularly interested in doing, but which are really good for the astronomical community. So I'm thinking of people in India and people in third world countries at universities, You know that this is all available, especially since computers are becoming cheaper. Yep, that special software is, is also kind of tough to use sometimes. <laughs> 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 it's it's not, not very well documented and not very But maybe that'll intuitive. get better, too, over yes. time. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of tough. Some of it I can't deal with. Um, so IDL was working on a package that was going to make it possible for, you know, an average person to sit down and analyze. There is a, a package out there. It's called Hands-On Universe. Uh-huh. that was developed in its initial form over a decade ago. Mm-hmm. IDL took this package and was supposed to um, improve it. It had a lot of bugs in it. You can mm-hmm. still use it, but it had a lot of bugs in it. And that's never quite been finished. Oh, no. But Hands-On Universe is what I use if mm-hmm. I want to look at astronomical data. These uh, beautiful pictures that you guys see out there in Radioland on the Internet, if you look at images, are JPEGs or they're GIFs. But astronomers store their data in a more meaningful form, and it's called FITS. stands for Flexible Flexible Image Transport System. And the radio astronomers developed it. It was their gift to astronomy as a whole because everybody uses it now. That's right. Everybody uses it. But you need some piece of software that can let you view the data in this form. It's not quite the same as a picture because there are numbers behind those pretty colored pixels. And if you're an astronomer, you can change the palette that you use to bring out different features and so on. So you have to take with a maybe a little grain of salt when you look at a pretty picture on the internet that you're seeing reality as it was first presented to the astronomer because they're going to enhance an image to bring out things that they're interested in. But I like to think that when you have the FITS image and you have a piece of software that lets you examine that, it's like being able to drive through the landscape of that image, you know, and look at in detail all the little things that you're interested in doing Mm -hmm. instead of just being shown one fixed view of the data. That's right. And the data's there and the data's real. Mm -hmm. And you can pop out of that data what you're interested in. Mm So there are a couple of free programs out there. If you, any of you are interested, you can get on the NRAO website and um, download a free copy of something called FitzView. And then if you come across a Fitz image on the Internet, you can look at it that way and manipulate it a little bit. And it's free. It's fairly easy to use without any documentation because it doesn't come with any either. <laughs> That's the trouble with free programs. You know, you just take them, see if you can figure out how they work. Well, um, tell us real quickly here how you go about turning radio data numbers into the image that you're going to eventually end up with. How do you take the data? 
Well, the GBT is a it's a single dish instrument. So I point the GBT at a particular location, and what it sends back is a temperature. It's actually once it condenses those wavelengths, right? It's the big dish is gathering the wavelengths, and once it condenses them together, it tells me how much that increases the temperature. Um, I do some checks. I point at bright objects in the sky so that I can figure out how many photons are coming from you know, that particular temperature. So I go and look at an object where I already know how bright it is, and I use that to tell the rest of my observations how bright they are. So because I want to map a large area, I actually have to scan across it. Um, and we do this many, many times. We make long rows, and then we make many, many rows right after another. And then we go back and do it again and again and again in order to remove things like clouds floating over the top of the telescopes, which could cause ripples in the image. So the weather does affect? At the, Your frequency, data. at the frequency that I'm observing, the weather does affect it. Um, if you go to um, lower frequencies, like 1.4 gigahertz, um, and even at 5 gigahertz, you're not, the weather doesn't matter very much. But um, I was working at 15 gigahertz um, earlier today, and that is definitely a frequency where you start to notice the difference. I had to postpone my observations on Monday because it was raining. All right. Well, that sounds really cool. Now, we're going to have to wait a while, I imagine, before we see your pretty picture <laughs> and find out what the answer is to your question about star formation in M82. How long is it going to take us? Uh, my projects generally seem to take about three years. I'd love to finish them in less time, but it seems that from the moment I get the idea and sit down and write the proposal until the moment where I have a really good, almost final draft of the paper, it's about three years. So I have a lot of projects in the works, you know, so I finish several projects a year. But, I mean, I think you should probably give me a year and a half at least okay. before we'll have a final paper. All right. But it's going to be a beautiful image. Yes, it is. It's going to be well worth the wait. I'm always <laughs> interested in new radio images for my educational things that I do. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. That I appreciate fun. it. And we'll see you next time around. Okay. Well, we're just about out of time for this month's installment of Mountain Radio Astronomy. I hope you'll tune in next month. In the meantime, I wish you all a very, very happy holiday season.